welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Matt Vincent, and it is great to be with you today. Um, I count this as a privilege to be with you. Vijay's been a friend for a number of years, and so I've heard about your church. He kind of brags and talks about you often, and so now to be here and get to be a part of uh, your time, your service together, it's just a real honor and privilege. Um, I give leadership to a network of churches called the Reunion Network that has church plants across Canada, now into Colombia and even in the Middle East in Kuwait. And so I've been doing that since 2014. It's been a bit of a wild journey and adventure, uh, but that's kind of what I do. And also by way of introduction, I want to sh- uh, throw up a picture here of my family. So this was our Christmas picture that we tossed out to all our friends. And so you're probably thinking, you know, that's a fairly normal looking family. But now as you're looking at it, you're probably thinking, wait a second, that's two dogs. And I admit, like somewhere along the way, it's a slippery slope. We went from one dog to two, and there may even be talks of what would a third be like, which is complete crazy talk, I know. And so now we've moved in your minds from a normal-ish looking family to those people. And I guess I just have to own it. That's us. Uh, We live in Ancaster, Ontario with our two dogs, Moose and Pippa, and, um, and pumped just to have some time to chat a little bit. So when someone says to me, where did you grow up? I would say I grew up in Toronto. Now, the truth is we moved around a ton as a as when I was a kid, uh, by the time I graduated high school, we had lived in 10 different places. So moving around was just always part of our rhythm. And just my personality, I was okay with that, like kind of just rolled with it. It was never the, you know too big a deal, but spent six years in Toronto. And at the end of grade 10, our family, my parents said to my brothers and I, they said, hey, we're moving from Toronto to this town called Meaford up on Georgian Bay. And I had never heard of Meaford. I'm not sure about you. I had no idea where Meaford was. Uh, Some of you may know, it's not too far from Collingwood if you go up there for skiing or anything. So we left, finished grade 10 in Toronto, and then moved to to this town called Meaford, which was a wonderful experience for me to finish high school up there. But at the time when we first moved, it was like, where on earth are we going? And the first week of school, first day of school, it's not too big a deal. I had lots of practice changing schools. But there's always this really interesting moment when you're in a new school, and it happens right at the lunch hour. So the bell rings, everyone grabs their lunch or their money, and they're going to head to the cafeteria. And there's always this interesting moment when you walk in as the new kid because you're standing there, and it's like this kind of organized chaos. Everyone knows where they're going. They're meeting up with their friends. They're sitting in certain sections. And as you scan the room, you kind of know that people belong in certain places. But as a new person, you're like, I don't even know where to go. And in some ways, you're just trying to find a a seat to eat your lunch, right? Like that's really what you're doing functionally, but it does feel like there's a lot more weight to it. Somehow it feels like this is a more important decision than simply where am I going to eat my ham and cheese sandwich? And so I think that's true. It was true then. And now as an adult, and I think about the role of being at a table together, sharing meals together, I have a much different perspective on what the shared eating experience is about. I've been thinking about this probably more than anything as a church planter over the last eight years, thinking, what does it mean for us to sit at a table, to share food, and to look each other in the eye? I would go so far, you may think it's crazy, I would go so far as to say, I think there's something sacred about being at the table together. So without going too far down the line too quickly, I want to walk through this really amazing interaction Jesus has with this social outcast that happens in a dinner party 
type format. Uh, it may be for some of you a really, really familiar story. For others, it might be the first time you've heard it. So wherever you are on the spectrum, that's fine. But this is this really cool um, situation where Jesus is coming into this new community. He meets this person who would be considered by the rest of the, the town as a, as a social reject and outcast, someone they did not want to hang out with. And Jesus chooses to spend time with this person and this amazing meal of transformation happens. So we're going to read it uh, and then we'll talk about it in just a second. So check this out. Luke 19, 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. So for the, like, the last 20-ish years, I've had the chance to like, teach in some kind of way in different churches. Doesn't mean I'm any good at it. Like I'm not VJ level or anything, but I keep getting these opportunities. And so like anything that you do on a regular basis, you kind of form your own pattern and rhythm. And in some ways, that's good. You're developing your own sense of um, teaching style and rhythm, and you're developing your own voice on how you communicate. The other side, though, is you can kind of come into a bit of a rut. You just kind of go do the same thing each time. Uh, and so I've been working on this new thing over the last year, I'm just admitting it, that is, I'm doing in my own personal reading and study, and also in my chance to lead and facilitate and teach with churches, because it's, it's opening my mind up in new ways. And so that's what we're going to do today. And I, it's, it's based on this framework, think, wonder, and do. And I'll explain it here. And pay attention, because in a few minutes, you're going to have a part to play in this as well. Uh, because I want to know what you're thinking and give you a chance to have a, have a conversation with each other. But the first section is think. What do I think? So this is where we naturally would say, what are the things we understand about the text? As we're reading the scripture, what do we know? It's where we use our cognitive ability. We look to cross-reference scripture, have other passages inform this reading. Uh, what else do we know about the topic, about the setting, the cultural setting? Um, all the different kind of intricate pieces and how they all come together, which is what we normally do often when we're doing a sermon or teaching is we think about it and what are the different angles we want to get at. So that's part one. Second part is, what do I wonder? Now, this is where we try to engage our imaginations, which at least in the church setting I grew up in, it almost felt like you couldn't do that. It almost felt like that was out of bounds. But I found amazing freedom in trying to wonder about what was really happening. It allows us to ask those crazy questions. It gives us permission to say, hey, what about? Like, whoever wrote this passage, they didn't include these kind of details. Man, I really wish they had said these kinds of things. And so you just say, hey, I wonder what, or I wonder about this, or I wonder that. It's not to answer the question. It's simply to engage our imaginations in the interpretation and understanding of Scripture. Susan Halen from Columbia Theological Seminary on this idea of biblical imagination says this. She says, 
Unless we employ our imaginations, we will never understand how the stories and letters, poems and visions of scripture relate to our lives. In my own experience as a teacher of the New Testament, I find that the greater problem is not that we exercise too much imagination in interpretation, but that too few people have a religious imagination that is grounded in scripture. And so we want to engage our imaginations. We want to wonder with each other about what we're, what we're studying and what we're thinking about. And the last part is, so what do we do? What should we do? It's, the app, it's a classic application section. Now that we've understood and we've engaged our imaginations and we've talked about that section of scripture and we've done our best to understand and interact with it, what does it mean on earth? What on earth does it mean for us today? What should we do with this as a church? What should I do with this as an individual? What would Jesus want me to do as a follow, if I've chosen to follow Jesus, what does then, that then mean for me? And so that's the framework we're going to use. Think, wonder, do, and I'm going to get you to track along as well. First, I'm going to set us up. I'm going to talk about a few things that stand out for me around the think and the wonder section. So here's a few things. They may resonate with you. I'm not sure, but here we go. The first thing under think, number one, no fan favorite. So when we read this story, it highlights that Zacchaeus was what they call a chief tax collector. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, what that basically means is that he was a Jewish man who is now under the employment of the Roman Empire that were over the nation of Israel. So being a chief tax collector meant he also had tax collectors underneath him. And tax collectors were kind of scummy people. They would inflate the taxes they were collecting and skim off the top. And so if you imagine Zacchaeus as a chief, he's, he's, not only, he's kind of skimming money off of all those tax collectors below him, and he's above them, and it says he's getting very rich. And so he would have been this person who, as a Jewish man, had sold out his own people to be an agent of the occupying force, the Roman Empire. He's serving those, that nation that's oppressing his own people. So he would have been completely despised, and he's getting rich and wealthy. And so the people, you can see, uh, in the scripture we read, they're kind of grumbling about the idea of like, why on earth would Jesus go with Zacchaeus to his house? Because he's this notorious sinner. He's this scumbag, this cheat. Why on earth would Jesus decide to go with him? And you know what? He's taken, you know, Jesus is going to the house that our taxes have bought that he's scammed off of us. And Zacchaeus is probably serving food that we pay for because he's cheating us out of our taxes. So there's a lot of angst about this because he was nobody's fan favorite. When it says that, uh, you know, people are grumbling, that's the truth. Like he would have been a hated, despised, kind of outcast person. So that's first. He's nobody's friend here. The second thing, I'm calling it uh, rude Jesus fast Zacchaeus. So is Jesus being rude? No, but let me explain. I grew up and my parents would always say, you never invite yourself to someone else's house. It was just like not socially okay. But here's where it got difficult. Like in grade five or so, Two of my friends down the street, Matt and Michael Smith, their parents bought them for Christmas, the very first Nintendo entertainment system. I'm not sure if you know, like you probably, for those of you old, as old as I am, probably sparked some like great excitement. They got this. I didn't know anyone else who had it. So I was always trying to figure out how to hang out with Matt and Mike, not because they had Nintendo, because we hung out all the time, but I didn't really want them to come to my house to hang out. I wanted to go to their house. So it'd always be that tricky dance because my parents would be like, you can't invite yourself to someone's house. And so I'd call them up and be like, hey, you guys want to come out? Like, come to my house. We could watch TV. There's probably nothing on. Uh, we could go outside and play road hockey. It looks like it's going to rain. Like trying to like invite them, but not make it sound too appealing because I really wanted them to say, you know, why don't you come to our house and we'll play Super Mario Brothers and it'll just be better because my goal was to get myself invited to their house. So when I see Jesus and he's like so compelling, like there's this sense of um, drive to the way he invites himself over. If you notice, it said in verse 
5, it says Zacchaeus. So he names him, calls him by name, which is interesting. First time meeting, but Jesus knows who he is and calls him by name. He says, come down. I must be a guest in your house. There's a sense of like um, urgency almost to what Jesus is saying. He's like, hey, I must be a guest in your house. And so Jesus in some ways is inviting himself over to this guy's house, right? And then we notice like that's striking to me is Zacchaeus responds so quickly. He comes down the, the tree and like jumps to action. So we can think, what is going on there, right? So let me give you a little background context. So for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they had this um, woven into the fabric and the culture of who they are. The idea of hospitality, of looking after the stranger, the outcast, the person who needed food, the person who needed clothing. It was not only like a nice thing you should do morally, but it was part of what it meant to be who they were. It was their very ethic as a nation. And so we have all kinds of Old Testament examples and writings where they would be welcoming the stranger, caring for the outcast, the poor. And so this was part of how they looked after each other. Um, if you read some other history, this practice eventually developed in the city of Jerusalem where they had this practice where if you were about to put on a meal, you would raise a flag outside of your house. And it was kind of like this, this indication to everyone like, hey, dinner's about to be served. If you need a meal, you see a house with a flag, you come. And there's all these guidelines on like, don't show up too often because you're taking advantage of the system. Or if you're a host, don't be a grumpy host, like welcome people well. There's all these rules around what that looked, to, looked like to, to welcome and love and care for people with a meal. But that's eventually what it grew into is like you toss up the flag and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, if you're hungry, stop by our house. I kind of equate it to um, the big green egg, which I'm not sure if you know what that is, but my friend bought a smoker a number of years ago. And the first time we ever went over to his house for dinner, as soon as we parked the car in the street and began walking towards the front door, all we could smell is what he had been like smoking for like 18 hours of beef brisket. It's like announcing to the whole neighborhood, I'm about to eat something and you're not invited. That's how it kind of feels. But um, this is this indication. So when Jesus says, I must be a guest in your house, and we see Zacchaeus immediately jump to action, that's what's going on. It's queuing in and tying into who he is as a person and what it means to be part of the, the Jewish culture. And so he jumps to attention. Um, in a second, let me just sidebar. I wonder when the last time he ever had someone over to his house. Like, if he was such a despised person, when did that happen? We'll talk about that in a second. So immediately we see rude Jesus. He's not being rude. He's inviting himself over. And this fast-acting Zacchaeus. And I think that is such an interesting dynamic of what's happening. And people grumble about it, but that's what's going on. Number three. Here's the last one I'll, uh, I'll leave you with. So this idea... I just kind of use the words of Red Hot Chili Peppers, give it away, give it away, give it away now. So we have this moment, there's this break in the story and we have no idea what happens. Jesus goes with Zacchaeus and then we have no details and all of a sudden Zacchaeus stands up and declares that he's going to give away his money. So what on earth happened? What kind of conversation was going on? We don't know, but he says, uh, first off he says this. So he says uh, that he's going to give away half of his money to the poor. So did Jesus instruct that? We don't know, but that's what he declares. I'm going to give half my money to the poor. Um, what was expected from someone who cheated another person, according to Old Testament law, the Old Testament guidelines that informed the, the policy and the, the, the rule of order for the, the people in those days, this is, this is what would have been expected according to their own customs and law. In the book of Numbers, it talks about the idea that if you cheated someone out of money, you would repay them that amount plus a fifth, so plus 20%. So say I stole 100 bucks from VJ and I felt like this is so wrong, I, I got to pay it back. I would give him 100 plus 
a fifth, so $120. And that would be considered making things right. So Zacchaeus could have said, here's all the people I've cheated. I'm going to pay them back what I've cheated them and add a fifth to that. That would have been considered the appropriate thing to do. But notice, first he gives away half of his money and then he says, I will repay them four times the amount. Now that could seem like just a random number, but it's not. In the Old Testament, there's another rule. Uh, I call it like the, the rustler rule. <laughs> like if you ever watch cowboy shows or anything, if you were to steal like a sheep or a cow or something from another person and you got caught, you would give them that animal back plus four. It would be like a four t- fourfold r- repayment. So what would have been expected because of the way he cheated people would have been a fifth on top of what he cheated from them. And yet he's, he's putting on himself, he's choosing to own on himself this kind of rustler penalty of paying them back four times the amount, which is amazing. And you think, what on earth happened at that meal, in that conversation, that all of a sudden Zacchaeus would move to be this like transformed, changed person? We'll come back to that. A few of the wonder things I think about. So what do I wonder when I read a section of scripture like this? The first is this idea of like what was happening beneath the surface. You know, I've heard those, that uh, kind of illustration, like a duck can seem so, so calm on the surface of the water, but underneath the water, his, his feet uh, or her feet are going crazy to keep him calm and steady. And I wonder, like, what is going on beneath the surface of Zacchaeus? Because if we just look at, at him from a face value, he's a cheat, a swindler, everyone hates him. He can't catch a glimpse of this Jesus, so he's going to climb a tree. Jesus invites himself over and we see this complete transformation of this person. So what on earth is going on? Was it just a random, hey, I should check this out. This guy's coming into town. I should try to catch a glimpse. Was it a spur of the moment thing? Was it a quick decision? Or perhaps it makes me wonder, was God already doing something in the life of Zacchaeus that was preparing him and and kind of generating this soil, this place of curiosity, so that when Jesus came, he had a curiosity to check it out and try to meet Jesus, so that when challenged about the ways he had cheated people, he was ready to make amends. What else was going on beneath the surface that created an environment so that these, this amazing interaction could happen and this life change could happen. Um, when you think about money, none of us just give away our money easily, right? It's one of those things that scripture talks a lot about. And here it seems like Zacchaeus is letting go of his pursuit of money in order to realign himself with the way of Jesus. He's letting go of something that had shaped and dominated his life to choose the way of Jesus, which is just fascinating. So what on earth was going on so that we see this complete uh, realignment for Zacchaeus. Another thing I wonder is like, so who else was at the party? I wonder else who showed up. So Jesus probably had his disciples with him. But whenever I think about this and I use my imagination, I think, so who else was hanging out there then? Because I would imagine Zacchaeus didn't have a lot of friends. He was hated, despised. When was the last time he threw a dinner party? When was the last time someone said, hey, can I come to your house? Or I must come to your house? Who else is there? Who else is hanging out? Did any of those grumbling people kind of make their way along and witness this whole transformation and change? Like what was going on? And even silly things like, I wonder what kind of food he served. You know, we know it was like the practice of hospitality was so important. So it's not like he just said, Jesus come in and they just sat there. He would, custom would have been, he would have washed Jesus's feet as the host. He would have washed all their feet. He would have put out food and drink and wine. They would have had a, like a good old time about it. So then on the surface, because I love food, I'm like, I wonder what they ate. I wonder what's going on there. Does it matter? No. But when I try to put myself and use my imagination, that is one of the things I think about. I'm like, wonder what they were mowing down on so that they had this whole conversation and what was going on. Regardless of those things, who else came, what food was being served, what was happening beneath the surface, the, this scripture passage is clear that 
Zacchaeus is one man before he meets Jesus, this one kind of person, and as soon as he meets Jesus, he's radically transformed and changed. And we don't have a lot of detail in the middle, but we have these two pieces, and we're left thinking, oh my gosh, something amazing has happened as they share time and space around the table, as they share food and break bread together. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pause right now, and I'd love for you just to have a chance to talk about it. Just the first two things. What do you think what do you wonder? So what jumps out to you? What grabs your attention? What do you think about it? And then toss out any question with each other. What do you wonder? What do you wish you had some more information on? I'm not sure how comfortable you are, wherever you are watching this, how comfortable you are having the conversation. So I usually at this point say that, you know, the universal sign of I don't really want to talk with you is like you bring out your phone. So if you're a complete introvert or you're checking things out for the first time, and it's uncomfortable. We understand you might need some space. Bring out your phone. People will leave you alone a little bit, maybe. But other than that, turn around, meet people, introduce yourself, enjoy being present with each other, and uh, we'll be back in a second to keep chatting.
right, welcome back. So let's let's kind of bring this all into a, like a little little tidy thing. Well, not super tidy, but let's let's chat a little bit about this. Let me give you one more. I wonder. I wonder if there are still people so curious about Jesus today that they're willing to climb a tree in order to catch a glimpse. Now, of course, Jesus isn't like walking through Bolton or Vaughn or whatever in in that way, but. But are people still curious and compelled and motivated to want to discover and figure out who Jesus is and what he's all about? Like, where are those people? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're hanging out this today and you're like, no, that's totally me. That's why I'm here. I'm not sure. But I, I sometimes wonder about that. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I had a hernia surgery. Won't get into that, you know, any details of that. But I was having hernia surgery at the Shouldice Clinic in the city here great experience but i walked into the room and there was a guy there who had had his a couple days before and we were sharing a room and one of the things i know whenever i take a flight or go into a close setting is i'm very mindful that as soon as they ask me the question you know beyond hey what's your name is normally we say hey so what do you do for a living i know that's coming and so for the first about 24 hours i was doing a masterful job at avoiding that kind of line of conversation because my experience often has been as soon as someone says, Matt, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. I work with churches and with church leaders and church planters. Like, wah, 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 like conversation is like done. I just know it. And so I was trying to avoid it. And my roommate's there and we're getting to know each other and having like a good time. And, and then I had my surgery and I, I come back later that afternoon from it. And I'm just kind of groggy and in, in pain. And, and that evening, the, the, the food cart comes around to our rooms because they feed you really well there. Um, shout out to Shouldice. And so he helps me get a whole bunch of snacks off the food cart and we sit and I'm lying in the bed and I kind of raise it up and he sits at a chair at the end of my uh, bed and we're just like eating and, and he's doing much better. He's a few days removed from his surgery. And then he asks the question, he's like, so Matt, so what do you do for a living? And in my mind, I'm like, oh no, it's been going so well. And I say, well, Nick, like I'm a pastor and I work with church leaders and that's what I do. And then he literally leans forward and says, hey, tell me more about that. And I was like, what on earth? And so we just begin this conversation. And I had my surgery leading into the Easter weekend. I had it on, on the Thursday. So Good Friday, I was actually lying in a hospital bed recovering. So this was that Thursday night, and I was talking about Easter. He's like, so tell me about Easter. And he didn't really know a whole lot about it. He had some Catholic background in his family, but he wanted to know, like, what is Good Friday all about? What is Lent all about? Like, what is Jesus all about? He's asking all these questions, which was just amazing. And we ended up talking for a couple hours to finally, it was kind of like time to go to bed. I was feeling it and pain meds were kicking in. And so he's turning off the light in our room and he says something like this to me. He's like, I feel like we're at a go, like a sleepaway camp and we're wanting to stay up late. And I just wish we could keep talking about this. And I'm lying in my bed in the dark as he turned off the light and I just like smile. And it reminded me like there are people who are still curious to know about Jesus those people are still out there who want to lean in, who want to know. And it was so interesting that we're in my hospital bed and he's in the chair and we're having this meal, snacks and eating. And I felt like it set, it set the possibility of that kind of conversation up in such a beautiful way. And we're still in touch and still talking about it. But it was such a good, Nick was such an encouragement to me because I felt like the message of Jesus is still so interesting and compelling for people. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about what does it mean to introduce people to the way of Jesus? And you can't talk about the way of Jesus without talking about being around the table. Whenever you read the gospel accounts, most of the time Jesus is on his way to a party, at a dinner party of some sort, or leaving one. It's all throughout his rhythm of life, is spending time with people, sharing food, being in their homes. 
Um, it's not this fancy new thing we're trying to do with the church now. It's almost like we're trying to get back to the regular rhythm and pattern because as we're at the table together, something special happens. This is the way of Jesus. This is who he is all about. Uh, Christine Pohl in her book, Making Room, says this, a shared meal is the activity most closely tied to the reality of God's kingdom, just as it is the most basic expression of hospitality. Think about that. You having a dinner party could be a wonderful, beautiful expression of God's kingdom. Now, I know that you're about to head into a time with your small groups, your home churches, I'm not sure the right terminology, where you're having party weeks. And I think this is amazing. This is so good because this is the opportunity for you to say, who are those people who are looking for a place of welcome and want a seat? Who's that grade 11 Matt standing at the door looking for an invitation to sit down? Who's that person who's up in a tree who's curious about Jesus and just wants a chance to talk? Who is lonely coming out of the pandemic and wants to have good conversation? Maybe they're not even interested about Jesus, but they want to have good food and good conversation and be connected with each other because that taps into who God has made us to be, to belong and be connected with each other. And so as you're planning these parties, like think, open your eyes, wonder with curiosity, who are those people that we can invite and see your homes and your dining room tables and your living rooms as places of hospitality, of places where God's kingdom breaks in and potentially, as you build those relationships, there's a chance to talk about who Jesus is and what he's all about. Um, there's this really great story that's part of the Easter narrative where Jesus is walking with these two disciples and they don't know who he is. And all they know is Jesus is dead and his body's gone. And as they're on this road and on this walk, Jesus starts explaining a whole bunch of things to them, helping them understand scripture, ancient prophecy. And then at the end of their journey, they're sitting down for a meal and they still don't know it's Jesus until he takes the bread and he breaks it. And at once their eyes are open and they recognize it's Jesus. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's, that it's at the table that their eyes are open and they recognize who Jesus is. I want to read another quote for you. Uh, Daryl Bach in one of his commentaries, he says it this way, It is no accident that Jesus is revealed as he sits having table fellowship with the two disciples. The table was the place for fellowship in the ancient world. Here family and friends gather to share time with each other. Luke has underscored the importance of meal scenes throughout his gospel. The table was a place where Jesus was heard and where his presence came across most intimately. This fact suggests that Jesus reveals himself in the midst of our basic moments of life. He is at home in the midst of our everyday, at act, everyday activity. And so Jesus has been always about inviting himself over or certainly inviting us to the table. He's done everything to set the table to make it possible for us to have relationship with each other and restored relationship with him. And he's made the, made the space available. And our job as followers of Jesus is to create space for others to encounter Jesus in this way. And your tables are the perfect place to do that. And so I just want to read this little prayer over you as a way of sending you out. Uh, and thanks for this time. I'm excited to hear about the stories that come out of your parties and your times with your neighbors in your neighborhoods. May you see your homes and your tables as safe places for people to experience the way of Jesus and awaken to the fact that this has always been the way to share life, food, laughter, sorrow, and joys, and to tell the stories of Jesus. So bless you as you open up your homes, set your tables, and party this week. Peace.